Good morning, everyone. So we continue our series today, Good News with Mark the Evangelist. We did have a few questions about the graphic, about the winged um, lion. And so uh, the authors of the Gospels are called the Evangelist. So when we say Mark the Evangelist, we don't mean like Mark, like Billy Graham or like Reinhard Bonnke, but the evangelists were those who told the evangel, that is, they told the good news. And so the gospel writers are called just that, evangelists. And, of course, the good news is the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his uh, death, his resurrection. Uh, In Christian art and iconography, the evangelists are often depicted resembling the four living creatures discussed in Ezekiel's prophecy and in John's revelation. The traditional order follows Ezekiel's uh, version of the evangelist as a person, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And there are a variety of ways in which the images get arranged kind of throughout church history and which particular gospel writer they get associated with is not always exact. Though the most common kind of follows the traditional order laid out by Jerome, who produced one of the earlier translations of the Bible into Latin. So the rationale behind the scheme uh, gives that the Gospels begin, their narratives begin with a story that somehow connects to one of these images. And at a time in church history where literacy was quite low, these types of icons kind of were used to kind of demonstrate the Gospel. So Matthew is represented as a human because his gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus, and we see Jesus' humanity there. Mark's gospel is associated with the lion because Mark's gospel opens with the lion roaring in the wilderness. You know, the quotation from Isaiah, uh, a voice is heard in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Luke uh, is associated with the ox because his gospel begins with temple sacrifice, a reference there. Jesus is presented kind of at the temple for his circumcision and John. Uh, as an eagle, because the Gospel of John starts with that prologue, which is also kind of heavenly oriented in the beginning, like before creation itself was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So they're often depicted as having wings, because the four living creatures had wings. And uh, in the chapel of the seminary that I went to, there are some stained glass windows there, and the Gospel writers are kind of depicted as this, as, as the person and hence, in our graphic, uh, Mark is a winged eagle. So today, uh, we focus on this section of Mark, Mark chapter 4, which is the kind of only clump of uh, parables that Mark presents for us. So here's the question. What is a parable? Well, we, we think we know. I mean, a parable, a common definition of a parable, is a simple story used to illustrate a moral or spiritual uh, reality or lesson, right? It's a description that simplifies, that makes something easier to understand, right? Making the complicated simple. So we imagine that Jesus' use of parables were for the purpose of instruction or perhaps for warning. And certainly in the Gospels, that's often the case, right? Jesus explains things or he reveals things by his parables. Yet in the Gospel of Mark, there's this passage of Scripture that comes at the end of the parable of the sower, which seems to disrupt that expectation. It seems to undercut that understanding of parables. So Mark has has told the story of Jesus telling the parable of the sower, and then he says this. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. When Jesus was alone, 
Those who were around him, along with the twelve, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret or mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables. In order that they may indeed look but not perceive, they may indeed listen but not understand, so that they may uh, not turn again and be forgiven, so that they may not be turned and be forgiven. I mean, what's Mark saying here? Parables are not for insiders, but for outsiders, and they're not to reveal, but to conceal? I mean, wait a minute. Did Jesus use parables to make things simple, or did he use parables to so complicate things that people wouldn't be able to understand what he's saying? And that seems to be what Mark says. Are his parables more for the purpose of instruction or for mystification? Are you confused? Yeah, me too. This passage in Mark has perplexed interpreters for centuries. And it's caused more than a few to simply throw their hands up in disgust. Uh, Martin Luther apparently understood the passage to be completely ironic. So this is what Luther said about Mark's recording of Jesus' statement. Luther says, St. Mark testifies, Christ also preached in ordinary parables for the uh, sake of simple-minded folk. Now, I'm not exactly sure what Jesus was saying when he says, I give you, I've given you a secret, but I speak in parables to confuse the others. But it doesn't seem to be what Luther's saying, right? I mean, Luther says that Jesus meant exactly the opposite of what he said. I mean, that's one way to kind of get around difficult passages. Like, we don't like something the Bible says, and so he says it must mean the opposite. <laughs> All right, so now that's a creative interpretation. And not that I'm against creativity, but perhaps we should kind of struggle with it a bit more. So Vincent Taylor, a renowned form critic from a century ago, said this statement was intolerable. Uh, Albert Schweitzer, a Nobel Prize winner, um, says it was repellent and incomprehensible. There's a Jewish scholar, uh, Mayor um, Sternberg, said that it was the most offensive words in all of the Christian Bible. Like, I wonder if he'd read the book of Revelation, because there's some pretty offensive stuff there, too. But in any case, he's like, this is offensive. Like, this, what could this mean, that a Jewish rabbi would tell parables in order to confuse people? Well, what does it mean? Uh, it doesn't sound like good news. However, Jesus does tell his followers, right? He says that his followers and the disciples, so it's apparently a, a big group of people, that they've been given the secret of the kingdom. But in the story, his closest followers, the disciples, don't appear to be better off because they know the secret, because they seem to be confused about who Jesus is. That is, they, they often get it wrong. Now, on the one hand, we see them kind of quickly following Jesus. They're loyal, they're courageous. Kind of what Phil talked about uh, last week when Jesus said, follow me, they got up and followed. And we might all say, I want to be like that too, right? I want to be like the disciples and be just as loyal and just as courageous. And when, when Jesus says, come, I come. And when Jesus says, go, I go. However, if we look closely at the disciples, they are a band of misfits. I mean, these folks get it wrong all the time. They might have been given the secret, but they didn't understand what it meant, right? 
Jesus will feed, you know, 5,000, he'll feed 4,000, and then he'll give them a pair, you know, he'll say, um, beware the feast of the Pharisees. And they're like, oh, man, we forgot the bread. Jesus is mad that we forgot the bread. And Jesus is like, mad about bread? Were you there when I fed all those people? I'm speaking metaphorically. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> Understand symbolism. And they get the other things wrong too, right? So they try to cast a demon out of someone and they fail. And so Jesus has to come to the rescue. And then there's some other people casting out demons and they say, hey, Jesus, should we go stop them from doing that? Well, why would Jesus want anybody stopped who was casting out a demon? He's like, no, if, if, if they're not against us, they're for us. Which is not the same thing as saying if they're not for us, they're against us. Right? That is the inverse of that. If they're not against us, they're for us. Let, let them do those things. They, they focused on status, right? They argued who could be number one and number two when Jesus came into the kingdom. They're fearful. They're afraid. They're cowardly. They're encouraged to have faith, and they're admonished for their lack of it. They're encouraged to stay awake, but they fall asleep when they're supposed to be praying. So on the one hand, this makes me feel a little better, right? Because Jesus can use folks who mess up a lot. Yeah? So if, if you think of yourself as a screw-up, like you, you feel like you're someone who often doesn't get the job done, don't worry. Jesus can use you, right? You're just like one of the disciples. I feel like that a lot. I feel like I start a lot of things. I finish a few things. But I'm not going to sweat it, right? Because God can use these broken people. On the other hand, it's still a bit confusing, though, because they struggle to perceive Jesus' as parabolic teaching. And according to this, this confusing, kind of troubling passage out of Mark 4 that says, uh, I tell those outsiders parables so they won't understand, but I give you the secret. They don't seem to understand, but in the only other kind of full-length parable in Mark's gospel, it comes in chapter 12, it's the one of the parable of the tenants who have rented the field. When it gets to the end of that parable, verse 12 says, and the Jewish leaders perceived that this parable was told against them. But I thought, I thought they were supposed to be the outsiders who wouldn't get it, and the disciples were supposed to be the insiders who would get it, and the insiders who should have got it didn't, and the outsiders who shouldn't have got it did. You still confused? Maybe. This is tough. I mean, if we're going to take the Scripture seriously, we don't want to kind of read past these types of things. These, these types of passages should give us cause for pause. Let us pump the brakes. Let us kind of lean in. Let us read again. Let us reconsider what, what might be happening. As I often say, the characters in the Gospels are either infuriated or scandalized by Jesus. Or they, they follow him, but in kind of haphazard ways, fumbling ways. And, and I would say that if we read the Gospels and we're never mad or confused, then perhaps we're not understanding the Gospels. Because every single character in the Gospel seems to have that kind of experience with Jesus. Right? So we shouldn't imagine ourselves to somehow be in a better place than they are. And we should listen to see 
what is it that perhaps Jesus is saying that might have us reinvestigate our own lives and our own understandings. So uh, let's take a, a general look at parables and then kind of focus in on this particular statement. So the, the Greek word for parable, parabole, is, is where we actually get the English word. It's often a translation of a Hebrew word that can mean saying or proverb, so they can be quite short, but it can also mean riddle, um, which may contain this idea of that idea of a kind of hidden message or a figure of speech. So there are three main types of parables. All of these can be found in Mark 4. The first is like a word image, a very short kind of statement. So in Mark 4.21, it says, Is a lamp uh, brought in, in and put under the bushel basket or under the bed and not under the lampstand? So you get kind of those very short kind of proverbial statements. Uh, secondly, we get a kind of a simple parable or a similitude, one like this. With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable will we use for it? Is it like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown it grows up and becomes the greatest of all the shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in the shade? And then we have kind of the full-blown story or narrative parable. And again, there's only two of these in Mark's gospel, the parable of the sower and the parable of the field. So Dominic Crossan contrasts myths with parables, saying, uh, here's a myth. You have built a lovely home, the myth assures us, but whispers the parable, you are right above an earthquake fault. William Plocker says that myths support the status quo but parables shake it up. Parables cause us to kind of become unsettled. Parables invite us into a closer, closer look. So parables may use the ordinary and the familiar, but they challenge our way of thinking by containing these odd and unexpected turns which make us look afresh or in new ways. This is key to the parables, I believe. Not the basic meaning, but kind of the unexpected. Origen, one of the early church fathers, put it this way. The writers of the gospel withhold any detailed exposition of the parables because the things signified by them were beyond the powers of words to express. I love that. That, that somehow the parable itself is a, is a symbol it, it is a mystery. Like, the mystery that's being given, the secret that's being given, is not something easily expressed in words. It's something that goes beyond that. We'll look more at that in just a second. Um, but we're, we're definitely going to come back to that idea. Karl Barth, a German pastor in the mid-20th century, said this about parables. He said, parables are about the kingdom, not about us. The stories are likened to the kingdom, the stories in the kingdom is likened to the stories. We ought not see ourselves in the parables, but rather we should see the kingdom in the parables so that what's being revealed is the kingdom and the king. And if we don't see ourselves in it, that's okay because it's not a revelation of who we are. It's a revelation of the kingdom itself. And that should draw us into the, into the story. Again, Plocker says this, and if 
if you've missed anything else I've said to this point, I want you to hold on. I want you to hold on to this statement. If we are to make the world a little more like God's reign, then we must start acting and thinking differently. And parables push us in the right direction toward faith. I'm going to say it again. If, we're to, if we are to make the world a little more like God's reign, a little more like God's kingdom, then we must start thinking and acting differently. And parables push us in the right direction uh, towards faith. So just a couple more. Uh, when John Calvin read this statement that Jesus says, I tell you a secret, but I give parables to those outside so it kind of hardens their hearts. He's like, that's what I've been telling you all this time. God saved the elect. He's not going to save the unelect. So the elect get the secret, and those outside, they don't understand, and their hearts just get hardened. Now, I can't go with them there. That's, that's not what I believe. I mean, I think it's a reading of that passage, and obviously that passage is not troubling for him, right? Because it kind of fits right into his theology. But I think something else is going on. Um, let's take a minute and, and do two things. One... Focus in on what this word secret or mystery might be. And then two, take a look at the context of the passage in Isaiah, which Jesus was quoting there that said they have eyes that won't see, they have ears that won't hear, they have hearts that won't, you know, be, won't understand or won't kind of be molded towards God. So first, this idea of secret or mystery. There's been a big debate over the last 150 to 200 years about whether or not Jesus was primarily a moral, kind of ethical teacher. Kind of, that was very popular in the 19th century, especially in Europe. Jesus became kind of wider and wider. You know, there's vacation Bible school Jesuses that you see kind of on the posters where he looks like he could be a member of the elder board at the church or whatever. I mean, Jesus looks very familiar, a very domesticated, but nevertheless respectful, respectful, uh, Jesus, respectable, I'll get it out in a second, uh, Jesus, right? So if you listen to the wisdom of Jesus through the parables, you'll learn kind of how to live a good life. And I think there's certainly a lot of truth to that, but I also think there's truth that that kind of overly domesticates Jesus and that he was a bit more first century, a bit more Jewish, a bit more prophetic or apocalyptic, and that he was talking about a change that was happening that the kingdom of God was at hand, and that things were going to be different than what you expect, that it's not just a matter of trying to be good or to work hard, but there's a transformation that comes with the presence of God, and that somehow, in a mysterious way, he was just that. So here's a secret. The Messiah that we've been expecting turns out to be more than just a Messiah. This guy's divine. So Jesus is divine, and divinity is Jesus. So that Jesus becomes the true and ultimate representation of who God is. So if we think anything about God that doesn't kind of match who Jesus is, then our thoughts about God are wrong. Like, Jesus is who God is. That's a mystery. That was a secret that they didn't know. Even when they confess Jesus is the Messiah, it's not like, oh, now they all know it all, right? It's, it's slowly kind of being revealed to them. It's dawning on them as the Spirit moves through them that Jesus is something more, and that something more is actually the divine, and that the divine is more indifferent than what they could have expected or even hoped for. 
that the divine comes not to kill the enemy. The divine comes not to destroy, but the divine comes to love. That Jesus comes and he's willing to die for us, not kind of kill us. That's a big part of the story. And that's good news, right? The secret, the mystery is good news. The good news is that God comes to be like us so that we can be like God. That's good news. And that's the secret. So this, this passage from Isaiah is an interesting one, though, right? So that, that passage that says they have eyes they can't see and ears they can't hear, it's Isaiah chapter 6, and it's part of, it's part of his kind of call narrative. It's the story of, of Isaiah kind of being a, becoming a prophet. Now, he had prophesied a bit before that, but at this point, um, it goes something like this. The king has died, and so Isaiah finds himself in the temple, right? It's what we do. When bad things happen... We kind of run to church, right? So, you know, we've lost our job or we've had a car wreck or somebody's got a bad diagnosis and it's, you know, now it's time to pray. So Isaiah is no different than the rest of us. Isaiah gets to the temple and he's going to pray and he has this vision of God. And it's in, in the old days, we used to sing this song. It's, you know, he's high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. It's this image of God kind of filling the temple. And an angel comes to, to Isaiah and Isaiah says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. Right? I'm not fit to be here. And an angel takes a coal from the altar and places it on Isaiah's lips, I guess, to kind of purify him. And then God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah responds, here I am, Lord, send me. <laughs> so I'm imagining that his lip was burned. Sorry. <laughs> Hashtag dad jokes. So here I am, Lord, send me. And so this is what God says to him, right? He's, God says, I need a prophet. Isaiah says, I volunteer. And God says, no one's going to see you as a prophet. No one's going to listen to what you have to say. Everything you do as a prophet is going to be ineffective, and these people are still going to die without that's encouraging. And what's the good news there? Now, a lot of us, I think, might respond in a variety of ways. We might say thanks, but no thanks. Or why call me to be a prophet if it's not going to do any good? But Isaiah, I think Isaiah's response is perfect, right? You have to remember, Isaiah's having a vision of, of the God Almighty, right? And so when God says, no one's going to recognize you as a prophet. No one's going to listen to you. And what you have to say is not going to matter. Isaiah's response is, how long? How long, O oh Lord? How long is it going to be like that? And, it, and God kind of responds with what sounds like good news. He says, well, you know, for this generation, but then there's a remnant. Right? There's a small group that will follow you. And that's, that's good news. Right? It's both good news and a little bit of bad news because in the 80s and 90s, like every other youth group was named the remnant, uh, I think, out of Isaiah. And it became a little redundant. And then, you know, then they became extreme and that was even worse. Um, so they'll have a little group. But then it says the little group will shrivel and die. And all that will be left is a stump. 
And then the very last words of Isaiah 6 is, but there's a seed in the stump. Thanks. So I'm going to be a prophet. It's not going to go well. There'll be a little group that follows me for a while until they all run away and die. But there's some kind of lasting effect because there's a stump with a seed in it. Now that sounds like a parable. I mean, that sounds like a riddle. Like, how are you supposed to understand that? So the, the very next chapter, the king, Ahaz, is being threatened by the, the, the Syro-Ephraim army. So the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria is threatening the southern kingdom. And so Isaiah comes in and says, Don't worry, king. I've been called by God to be a prophet. And I have the word of the Lord for you. And the king's like, well, I'm kind of busy. I'm negotiating a peace treaty with Assyria because they can protect us from the northern kingdom. And he goes, no, 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 no. You don't have to worry about Assyria. You don't have to, they don't have to worry that they'll take care of you because a girl's going to have a baby. And the baby's going to eat cottage cheese. And before the baby's old enough to know right from wrong, God will have delivered you. Now, Ahaz doesn't listen to Isaiah, and generally we're like, oh, bad king. But, but let's give him a break, right? <laughs> because if you were the king, and some prophet walked in, some guy walks in and saying, I'm the prophet of the Lord, a little girl's going to have a baby, and he's going to eat cottage cheese, you'd be like, give me a break. Somebody get this guy out of here. We've got, we got the kingdom of the Lord to protect. Right? We've got, we've got our own people, the northern kingdom, who have made a deal with Syria to come and kill us. Right? Our, you know, our own fellow Jews have made a deal with the Syrians, so we're going to make a deal with the Assyrians and protect us. We don't, we don't need this. I mean, Isaiah is speaking in that same kind of riddled language that God had spoke to Isaiah. You're going to be my prophet who, to people who can't hear and people who can't see, and people who won't change. You're going to be my prophet, because there's the seed in the stump. So he was his prophet, right? Little girl's going to have a baby. Trust in the Lord. Come on. That kind of, that kind of language is language that comes at us and then disrupts us. But what's interesting about how that's all laid out, so an Old Testament professor at my, my seminary would say it like this. He would say that the whole of Isaiah is contained in a nutshell in Isaiah 6. So that the, the eyes that can't see and the ears that can't hear and the hearts that won't turn and be changed is Ahaz's generation. That Isaiah's ministry is ineffective there because they're unwilling to kind of listen and to pay attention. But that the remnant is the, next, is the next section of, of Isaiah. So 25 to, say, uh, 39. Because that's the generation of Hezekiah. So Ahaz, although Scripture kind of presents him as kind of an ungodly king, his son Hezekiah is presented as a very godly king because he does follow, right? So that kind of represents the remnant. Unfortunately, of course, as Hezekiah gets old, 
he kind of starts to flirt with the Babylonians. And Isaiah's like, man, you guys, are, you're missing it, buddy. You know, you've done so well. You had a revival. But the Babylonians, you know, that, they're not your friends. The Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy you. They're going to destroy your city. They're going to destroy God's temple. Hezekiah says, oh, no, prophet, when will that happen? And some of the most regrettable words in all the scripture come out of the mouth of Hezekiah. The prophet says, this will happen to your children's children. And Hezekiah says, good. Because for a second there, I thought you were going to say that all that was going to happen to me. The real test, maybe, of our faithfulness, the real test of our leadership is not whether or not we can build great things while we're around, but where our children's children have faith. Will we we have lived lives faithful to, to Jesus and to the Spirit that we'll be able to pass on to our children the faith? The whole book of Isaiah shifts after that. From 40 to 66, he's no longer speaking of his contemporaries, right? It's not Isaiah's contemporaries that are the audience anymore. It's those who are in exile. The exile wouldn't take place for another generation or two. But Isaiah 40 through 66 is the stump. It's, it's, it's the ones who are kind of taken away from their land and taken away from their temple and taken away from their city. There was nothing left. But there was a seed in the stump. The seed is is the word. The seed is the message. The seed is the promise for the future. The seed is God's faithfulness despite our unfaithfulness. And at least in Isaiah, that comes in stories like this. Isaiah chapter 40, a voice is heard crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Or in Isaiah 53, the man of constant sorrows or excuse me, the man of sorrows, the man of constant sorrows, was, was um, from, oh, brother, what art thou? Yeah, yeah. It's related, though. It's related. The man of sorrows, right? By, he's, he's beaten for our iniquities. By, by his stripes we are healed. It's in this passage of Scripture, too, that we find um, this, this story that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to, 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 to heal the sick. It's, it's here that we have the first kind of vision uh, out, of, out of the Hebrew prophets of a new heaven and of a new earth and of a city that's filled with peace. This, this is an early kind of proleptic vision of the coming of the kingdom. This is that mystery that even though those who are called to be part of the solution are themselves so kind of broken and miserably in need of help, that nevertheless God's faithfulness can still work through them to bring about God's plan, which is to redeem this place and to make the wrongs right. You see, it is the seed that Jesus had been speaking about. The seed is is not simply whether or not, you know, you're in a good position to kind of hear this sermon or another sermon. The seed is, is the very word of God. 
the very kingdom of God, and not just the kingdom itself and its whole, but the king. And that is the good news. That Jesus is the king. And it's a radical different expectation than what the Jews in Jesus' day had, right? The Essenes, they were like, you know, the homeschoolers. No, no, um, no disadvantage to homeschoolers. We homeschool, right? But, but they, they feel like the only way to be in the world is not to be in the world, right? So they, they come out and they have their own school and they have their own uh, literature and they have their own films and they have their own, you know, own little subculture, right? So everything you do is Christian. I, I certainly fit partially into this category, right? I go to a Christian church. I teach at a Christian college. I live in a Christian home. We homeschool our Christian kids. But they needed a Messiah that just cut off the rest of the world and saved just them. The Pharisees were a bit like that too. They felt like, like we had to kind of do the right thing. We had to maintain our kind of Jewish identity. The Sadducees, they needed a Messiah that was uh, politically savvy, right? One who could kind of take over the systems of the world, right? One who could become president, right? So if we can, and we get Christians like this all the time too, right? If somehow we could just all vote the right way, then our place would be right. No. No, that's, that's actually not how it works, right? There's no a matter of voting that's going to make the world Christian. It's only the coming of God that can make the world Christian. It's only the Christ that can make the world Christian. And then, of course, you had the zealots, right? The zealots, they wanted a Messiah too, but they wanted someone to come and kind of military power take over the world, right? If we kill enough of the people who don't believe what we believe, then the world will be right. All of those belief systems, the Essenes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, they were all expecting a Messiah. But Jesus wasn't what they were expecting. And what he's saying is, look, if you keep expecting that, you're not going to get what you need. But if you come and follow me, I've got a secret for you. It's better than what you'd hoped for. But here's the kicker. For us, it's easy to actually fall into some of those same categories that the ancient Jews fell into. There is no number of non-Christians or non-Americans that we could possibly kill that's going to make the world godly. That's not how God's system works, right? It's through sacrifice. It's through love. It's through mercy. It's through forgiveness. Thank you. Lord? (laughs) So what Phil was saying last week, when Jesus says, come and follow me, and how his teachings is this idea of a yoke that we take upon us, Set aside the yoke that makes you think that somehow it's military might that can save you. Set aside the yoke that says it's political advantageousness that can save you. Set aside the yoke that it's kind of religious purity that can save you. And take on a yoke that says it's 
Blessed are the poor, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are the humble, and blessed are those who are persecuted, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Take on the yoke that says, you have heard it said, don't commit murder, but I'm telling you not to hate. Take on the yoke that says, you have heard it said, uh, don't uh, commit adultery, but I'm telling you not to lust. Take on the yoke that says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, but I'm telling you to love your enemy. Take on the yoke that says, judge not, lest you be judged like that, but follow me. Follow a way of love and forgiveness. Follow a way that seeks justice for those who have injustice. Follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. And the kingdom will come. So I'm not sure, right, how all this is supposed to work. Uh, there, the scriptures are full, filled with plenty of moral imperatives. The scriptures are filled with plenty of eschatological or kind of warnings about the future, about repentance. They're full of both of exclusion, right? If you don't come to Jesus, you get excluded. But those who are excluded do end up perceiving and those who are included sometimes struggle. And I kind of I love that, right? Because where Calvin and I don't sit, um, I see eye to eye, is that I do believe that there are the chosen. But I think the chosen are not the end, but a means to the end. I think concealment is not the end, but a means to the end, Right? So I think sometimes we get these disruptive passages because like any good revelation, it's cryptic. And in its crypticness, it draws us into it. And as it draws us into it, it kind of changes who we are. It, it reduces our sense of certainty and it increases our sense of empathy, right? And it plays into us or it kind of I would even say sows into us, uh, forgive the farming pun, uh, faith and a way of knowing and kind of being in the world. The kingdom of God, I believe, is both already here in the sense that Christ has come, we have been forgiven, and we are being invited to participate. But it's also still to come. It's both growing slowly like a seed and it's going to change more than we can imagine when all these things eventually get made right. We have something that you uh, want to give you to kind of take with you for the week or the weeks to come. It's a little acorn and it's a seed. It's a seed that's come from a stump. Uh, let it represent the future of, that God has for you, a future filled with peace and joy and mercy and forgiveness, a future that represents the coming of the kingdom and the coming of the king. Not, not his historical coming when he came as a baby and maybe not even the ultimate coming at the transformation of the world, but that other middle coming 
when Christ comes to us in our hearts and we perceive the mystery of the love of God and the revelation of who God is.